God, I'm humbled to approach your throne for this cause. Israel is your chosen nation. There's no doubt about that. And attacks against your people uh, incite your anger, righteous anger and indignation. And, And it affects us as believers deeply. God, as we have seen stories and and maybe even seen some videos and just horrendous things happening to people that are your children, God. All of them are your children. Father, we just ask that you would strike down evil in this moment. That you would raise up godly leadership, Lord. That you would turn the hearts of kings As your word declares, you guide their hearts like the streams of water, Lord. And you turn them as you so desire. Lord, you even rose up Pharaoh for a purpose, God. And I I, I recognize that you have purpose even in uh, incredibly horrendous situations. You bring purpose out of it. Your word in Romans declares that you bring all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, God. And so in heartbreak, in heaviness, and in sorrow, with humble hearts recognizing that we can't comprehend what you are doing in this time, we ask that you would move. You would help us to be wise with our words. You would help us to be um, compassionate in our hearts. Let us not be swept away in propaganda and politicism, Lord, but let us be grounded in who you are. Father, as I attempt to uh, share some highlights from this incredibly meaningful passage of Scripture, I ask, Lord, that you would use me as a vessel to uh, speak out your word in a manner that impacts lives here today in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, So the title of tonight's message is God's Plan, Your Salvation, His Purpose. And you can kind of take each one of those two-word statements there and break them up to the chapters. Chapter 9 is God's Plan, Chapter 10, Your Salvation, Chapter 11, His Purpose. And we'll, we'll walk through that. Uh, I mentioned that this little three-chapter section is, is incredibly meaty and weighty. Uh, some scholars, when, when they discuss this, they, they feel almost like you can have the book of Romans on everything before it, everything after, and then this is kind of like inserted. And, you know, chapter 9 through 11 is like inserted into it. Now, that's not, nobody actually believes that happens, or maybe... I don't know what it, some people believe crazy things, but that, that's not what most scholars believed happened. But you can kind of look at it like you can pull this section of Romans out and look at it as its own little isolated chap, uh, subchapter. And it becomes a very contested portion of Scripture from the standpoint of something called Calvinism and Arminianism. 
and I am not going too deep there. <laughs> uh, but I do, as we look at this, this study, and, you know, I talked with Pastor Russ, and I was like, are you, are you sure? This, like, this is deep. I got, a, I got a lot to cover. He said, Jason, we're not trying to make them theologians tonight. <laughs> but I do want to give you awareness of what are the theologians discussing here. And if this is something that excites you, that, you know, the Lord puts something in your heart, like, I want to go deeper in this, know that this is a great uh, set of chapters that, uh, you could literally listen to uh, six hours on YouTube, like I did, of commentators just ripping this apart and not even get you know a, a, all of the, the knowledge you could from it. Um, so, uh, in that regard, uh, Armenianism, Calvinism, right? Armenianism is more along the lines of believers have choice to become God's people. We, we elect out of our will to follow him, and we, at, in following him, he provides us salvation, or in committing our lives to him, he provides us salvation. Calvinism would say that God has elected all whom will be saved, and humans lack, and this is the, the, the important part as I'm going to share, what, at least as it relates to what I'm going to share today, um, that in Calvinism, humans lack the capability of making a decision for God without him first prompting you. So our spirits, it, it, there, in Calvinism, there's true five-part Calvinism is, uh, is noted by an acronym called TULIP. And each one of those letters kind of stands for something as, as a core principle. And the first one is the total depravity of man. Man in our, in our sinful nature is so depraved that there is nothing redemptive capable within us. Even the ability to choose faith in God, we don't have because we are so depraved. And today what I'm going to show you is why I believe and this church believes that is an inaccurate picture of Scripture and what God declares. But we'll touch a little bit on why, hey, this is why they say that. This is the verse that they look around and, and where they would hold on to. And it's really in, in Romans chapter 9 and the way God, it talks about God choosing and electing, right? And, and so that theology is the theology of election or predestination. And one thing that's really important that really helped me as I was studying into this was this, con this reality that you can't read theology into Scripture. Scripture needs to define your theology. So what do I mean by that? When, when, you, when you read the word election in Scripture, obviously they're not talking about the ballot polls, right? Um, but they're also not talking about necessarily the theological uh, position of the doctrine of election. That when, you, when you look in the study of theology and you, you learn about the doctrine of election and predestination, it has all these presuppositions around it. It has all these things that you, you, you grasp onto and that you just agree with. Right? It's kind of like the rules to the game of election. Right? Like if you say, in America, we're playing football. Well, that means there's a, a, a center, a quarterback, some running back, some linemen. Right? You go over to England and say, hey, we're going to go play football. 
Well, this is a, this is a little different, right? There's a goalie, a goal, a pitch, right? You're not on a field, you're on a pitch. Um, but what happens with people who study the Bible lightly is they'll read a word that they know has an, a doctrine tied to it, and they'll read everything else into the scripture. They'll assume that we're playing under the election rules, not the election rules of just what, what scripture, what's the context of the scripture at that time. Okay? So, hopefully that's as deep and academic as, as I'm going to get uh, from that regard, just in kind of laying the groundwork here for Romans chapter 9. Uh, but, so, let's start... In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, we're only going to probably hit like 10 portions of the scripture in this. Uh, but Romans chapter 9, picking up at verse 2, Paul speaking, he says about the Israel, the, the nation of Israel, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my own race, the people of Israel. For theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple of worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, Amen. Paul has this deep heart cry to see. He wishes that Israel were saved and had not rejected Messiah. His heart is broken for them. And in that breaking, and as he describes that to us, he reminds us of who this people is, who God has called them to be. He set them apart. When I, when I said earlier that Israel is God's chosen people, there's no doubt about it. Romans chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9, 2 through 5 makes really clear how important they are. And Paul grieves that they've rejected the Messiah. If we jump down to verse 8, because there's this, this debate of, well, if they're God's people, why did they reject Messiah? In verse 8, in other words, it's not the children by the physical descendant who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For as I'm sorry, for this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the, at the time by our father Isaac. Yet the twins were born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose might in elect, I'm sorry, that God's purpose in election might stand. And this is where that Doctrine can get read in here if you're not careful. Find my point here. There we go. Um, not by works, but by 
Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Oh, got a lot going on there. So let's contextualize what's Paul doing. He's talking to this people. He's, he's building a case of what, how faith is attained in God, and he's starting it by speaking about things that every, every person of Israel would agree with. Okay? It is stated fact. Nobody argues that the promise comes through Abraham's offspring, right? But does it come from all of Abraham's offspring? No. No. Because we have uh, Abraham who, in his own impatience, had a child before he had the chosen child of God, right? And so God disregarded for the sake of the promise, Ishmael, and he gave the promise through Abraham's seed by Sarah. And then you carry this one step further. So God can choose only a portion of a lineage, is what Paul is making clear here. Also, the next step, the next generation, when we have Rebecca and her children, she has twins. And while they're still in the womb, God says the younger, I'm sorry, the older will serve the younger. Now all the babies in the house said amen. <laughs> but this is, this is big time. Because in Jewish faith and in Jewish religion, the firstborn gets everything. They get the double portion. They get the anointing. They, they get the inheritance. They are the, the trustees on the estate, and they can decide it all goes to them. If we were to put it in our vernacular. So for the younger to serve the older, Paul is reminding the people that, hey, not only can, can God choose a portion of the lineage, he can shake up how it's done. He's not confined to your human traditions. And as a reminder, and why does Paul have to do all this? Why does he have to clarify all this, this stuff? Why does he have to get people in agreement with him? Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the Roman church that he's never been to. And he's defining for them, this is what the faith should look like. This is the runway. And so he's giving them all the way back to Israel and the, the patriarchs. How do we walk through this thing to, to get to a place of faith? And then we get to this, this, these challenging portions here where it talks about God's purpose through election. And that Jacob I loved. This is, this is the mouth of God. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. So a little participation here. Hate. What do we, when, when we read the word hate, what do we read into it? Anger. Don't like them? Jealousy? I want nothing to do with that person, right? Absolute and total separation. Well, that is actually us reading our feelings into that scripture. Did God hate Esau before he was born and had done a thing 
And Scripture even says they had neither done, they had done nothing, either good or bad. And yet God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. How do, what do we do with that? Well, we have to understand that sometimes there are just turn of phrases, right? Like, I hate french fries. Like, do you really, like, you hate french fries? Like, you see a french fry and you just want to punch it? No, you just like french fries less than you like chips. And this is biblical. I'm not, I'm not just trying to, like, get us off the hook and make it easy for us. There, there's this other guy in Scripture, Jesus. You heard of him? In Luke chapter 14, I don't think this is going to be on the, the, scripture, on the uh, screens. Luke chapter 14, 26, he says to us, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I'm pretty sure I'm told several times in Scripture, I got to love that woman right there. I got to love her as if it were my own body, right? So what's Jesus saying here? Well, this one we, we've all probably read and thought through before. Like, yeah, yeah, God's not asking me to hate my mom. Like, I'm not, he's not saying, you know, you, you see your dad and you're like, boom. Yeah, because I love Jesus. Oh, but by comparison to my love for God, I can't even put I can't even put you on the same platform as my love for God. It is to be as though I, I hate that person because there's just such this gap between my love for God and my commitment. And that, that's what Scripture is inferring to us here back in, in Romans and back in, in the Old Testament where we're being quoted that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. No, no. Jacob, I have a specific, unique, eternal purpose for that is so far beyond anything that anybody can imagine. It would seem as though my, my concern for everything else seems almost meaningless because Israel is God's people. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For for. Moses says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. And this, again, starts to build into some of those uh, theologies and doctrines of, well, see, God's saying, I'll have mercy on who I want. I'll have compassion on who I want. He chose people. So this, is, this whole section of Scripture is where people who believe in uh, predestination and uh, the total depravity of man, this is where they, they build their argument from. And if you read it in isolation, and you don't get to chapter 10 and 11, which I hope I do tonight, <laughs> um, you, can, you can walk away from the text and feel that way. But here in verse 22, where we'll jump down to, Paul begins to turn the corner a little bit, or at least give us a, a peek around the bend of, how does, how, how does this not all work that way? It, it, this really seems like this is going down that election road. Uh, how, how do we turn that corner? Gives us a different thought. That maybe we don't see the world the way God does. I mean, I think that's a, a, probably a pretty, pretty good judgment that I don't see the world the way that God does. 
in Romans 22. What if God, although choosing to show wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? A little bit of a brain turner there. Um, so let me, let me break that out for you. It's talking about God having mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and, and having compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. Like people, This is kind of getting to that question of like, well, how come these awful things are happening right now in Israel if God is such a good God? How, how could he let that happen? How could he determine that to happen? Well, Scripture declares that God can have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. But Paul says, what if our concept of mercy and compassion is actually short-sighted. He talks about those objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And in context, it's looking at those lives that have deserved wrath, like mine. Have I sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Is the consequence for sin separation from God, destruction, and wrath? So literally every breath we breathe is God bearing patiently with objects of wrath. I'm not deserving of the many blessings I have. None of us in this room are deserving of the blessing to be standing or seated here in America and not sifting through piles of rubble. It's simply his patience and his, his forbearance with us that these objects of wrath haven't already been destroyed. Maybe we're a little short-sighted when we call God evil, we call his actions unjust, and we're not properly reflecting and looking in the mirror to say, well, but by the grace of God, there go I. I could be that, I could be that in an instant. What if he did this to make his riches known of his glory to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance? We look at the present things that may not be good, but we don't remember that God has refrained from the total destruction that is deserved. So why didn't I get that promotion, God? Why, why didn't my kid get into that school? Why, why, was, why was my son in that car when that drunk driver came across? We look at what we, what we lack, that, that, that good thing that we're, we're missing, and we say, God, you're not as good as you said you were. But God's already refrained from giving us what we deserve. 
right? That's the definition of mercy, not giving you the bad things you deserve. Grace is giving you good things that you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you the punishment that you do deserve. So when we read this, what if God, although choosing to show wrath and make his power known, bore patiently with objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make his riches and glory known to the objects of his mercy that he prepared for in advance? Maybe we need to think a little bit more from heaven's perspective when we judge what's good or evil and not just what's good or evil for our life. Jumping down to verse 30. What then shall we say that the Gentiles, those who are not of Israel, all of us, I, I don't know if we, I don't believe we have any Jewish people by nationality in the room tonight. Um, but what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way to righteousness have not obtained the goal. Because you can't keep the law. That's right. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but by works. So they had it all wrong. And this is where, as we uh, shortly transition into verse 10, Paul starts to pull that string away. Where It seemed like, hey, we're just going down this road uh, towards election. Uh Paul's going to start unraveling that conversation very, very quickly here. No, 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 no. The Gentiles have obtained righteousness by becoming Jewish, by adhering to the Torah, by you know, taking on these laws and rules and regulations by living perfect? No, by faith. And the Gentiles didn't get it for exactly the reason, or I'm sorry, not the Gentiles, the, the, the Jewish didn't get it for exactly the reason that they pursued it in the wrong way. They wanted to pursue it by law, not by faith. That's what we missed. And oh, by the way, lest you think, oh, well, yeah, I mean, like, since Jesus came, now you can do it by faith. The Jews didn't have that option. Let's talk about that. It's not in the, the uh, scriptures or in the, the verses for tonight, but let's think about that. Father of all Israel, Father Abraham, and many sons, right? It says back in the Old Testament that he believed in faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not that he did good things. Not that he followed the law perfectly. He believed and it was credited to him righteousness. That's always been the way that God operated. It's your belief in him, not your actions. See, too often we, we as believers, um, in order to make ourselves feel comfortable with what's in the Old Testament, we separate the Old Testament from the New because, like, there's kind of some rough stuff going on in there. And, you know, like, Jesus is all loving and comforting and Holy Spirit. And, you know, we get all the, the foo-foo feelings over here. And we got, like, this wrathful vengeance God over here. But he's always taken in his people by faith. 
And if you really do a, a good in-depth understanding of even uh, the, the pieces of scriptures as into the commandments, the Ten Commandments, they're like, it's about relationship. It's about relationship with God and relationship with people. This has always been how he's operated. I'm so far behind. So let's get into Romans chapter 10. So that was all his plan. How does that plan work out? It's by faith. Then your salvation, Romans chapter 10. This is where we get a bunch of like key verses for Christians, right? Um, but we'll start with Romans 10 verse 2. Again, speaking about the Israelites so that they might be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based in knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish it on their own. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. So where does your righteousness come from? Submission to God. I can't attain this by doing the right things. I can't follow the law perfectly. I can't get there by doing it of my own will. I need God. My, where are you placing your security? Do you claim Christ's righteousness or your own righteousness? Because one of those is going to burn up in the fiery uh, furnace of judgment when you stand before the Father. And it ain't Jesus's. So Christ is the culmination of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness that is in the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the, righteous, but the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That gets like really heady. Let me jump down to verse 9. That's going to actually be up on the screen. Paul goes through this, this really like, kind of forward and backward of what do we do with Jesus and how do we attain righteousness? Let's just make it really easy. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Done. Didn't follow one commandment. Didn't preach one sermon. Didn't speak in tongues. Didn't, you know, do anything other than declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is Lord. Let, let's, let's understand. What does that mean? I am going to live like he tells me to. So that's what you do with the Lord. Right? Like we've spiritualized that term. Lords are rulers and, and kings. They, they are authorities. Jesus is the authority, period. Not the, not the Torah, not the rabbi, not the temple, not, not society, not social media, not my feelings. Jesus is in charge. Amen. And I believe God raised him from the dead. Saved. Done. Even before baptism. Those were great. We did those on Sunday. I got to baptize my own son. Amazing. But that wasn't the key to his salvation. His salvation came when he, when I, when, when he said, because he said, you know, I want to be baptized. Well, okay, son, first of all, that's awesome. Uh, why do you want to be baptized? Because I love God, and I want to tell everybody. Okay, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that God rose him from the grave? Yes. We're done. I don't, I don't need you to have a degree. 
I don't need you to, to write some nine-point essay. I don't need you to witness to anybody. Salvation has come to that young life. That's all it takes. Paul goes on for, in verse 10, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So Scripture says, anyone whom believes will never be put to shame. And here is where you can absolutely just undermine the Calvinist argument of total depravity of man. The, these two verses are man having faith, declaring with their mouth, believing in their heart, they will be saved. I don't know how you get around that. It's pretty plain. Amen. Human participation in the process. And that's ultimately what, you know, kind of turns the, the head on, on Calvinists because we, we participate. We participate. We, we have faith in our heart and we believe. Goes on to say that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The, the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, not just the elect that God has, you know, predetermined is going to make it to heaven. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jumping down to, so like nine, chapter 10, 9 through 15, half of this room had probably memorized portions of that growing up. If you grew up in church, you, you, these were like the, uh, Bible drills, or uh, were the little games that we used to play? Um, sword drills. There you go. Thanks. Yeah, you, you grew up in my type of church, right? You, the, where the leader, the youth pastor would like yell out a verse, and you got first person to hand up, stand up, and you know, so you got to speak it out, and you messed up on a word, so somebody else got another turn. Yeah. Good times. Here, Here's where scripture goes on to say, because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And every evangelist loves this one. Verse 14, how then can they call upon the name of the Lord they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news my feet are beautiful today because I got a mani-pedi no because I'm bringing the good news because we're bringing the news of God there's power in your testimony believer Somebody needs to hear it. How can they respond to the love of God if they don't know how he's loved you? And that's all your testimony needs to be, by the way. You don't need a, a three-point sermon, historical proofs of Jesus' resurrection. Your testimony, evangelism, can be as simple as 
let me tell you how God loved me in this situation. How I felt comforted in a way that I, I never thought I'd be comforted. Right? And it doesn't even have to be about your salvation testimony. Right? If, if we put a mic in front of a lot of you and said, hey, share your testimony, you'd be immediately be like, I, I, oh, okay, how did I get saved? I was, I, was, I was 10 years old. No, was I 11? I was 10? I, was, I don't know. And like, we start tensing up because we think testimony always has to do about salvation. No, testimony is about God. How, how has God shown love to you? Right? I think back to this Sunday with you know, the baptism of my son. And you know, we must have had about 15 people in that backyard from various church communities and families that we've been a part of. That was God showing his love for me. Look at this community that, that, that's here. Some have driven you know, 80 miles to be and watch you celebrate this part of your life, and more importantly, watch your son publicly testify of his faith. I was so loved in that moment, watching people show up person after person to, to celebrate with us. And guess what I got to do at work on Monday? Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, my gosh, it was amazing. Well, I, th I thought the Cowboys lost. We're not talking about that. We're talking about my son. And I, I literally had that conversation with people who were trying to get me to talk about a game that they knew I was emotionally invested in, but I got to share a testimony that I'm way more emotionally invested in. Just here's how God loved on me this weekend. So you're, there's, powerful, there's power in your testimony. There's power in what you say because it, it is the thing that can allow somebody to respond so that they can have faith in Christ Wrapping up quickly, landing the plane, as it were, in chapter 11. We're going to jump into verse 6. Paul talks about that, that, you know, we're not doing this by works. We're doing this by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems to make sense. After all that, like, complicated stuff, could we have just started with this, Paul? <laughs> you got all heady on us and academic. Just, yeah, it's by grace. If it's not by grace, then you got works. And guess what? Works don't work. They don't work. You can't do it. You're going to fail. Jumping down to verse 13, uh, there's just so much more I could say, but I'm trying to, trying to get us out of here close to on time. I'm talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be, but life from the dead. So, so this kind of circles back to the beginning of verse nine or of chapter nine, where he says, "I'm so brokenhearted that the is the Israel, the nation of Israel, isn't with God." 
but I know I'm called to the Gentiles. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is, this is where I'm supposed to be. These are, these are the people that God has called me to reach. Peter was reaching the Jewish people. Paul was reaching the Gentile people, by and large. It's not 100% you know, true, but that, that's kind of where their focuses were in their ministries. But Paul is like, guess what? Maybe if I get enough of these Gentiles saved and, and, and the, the Jewish people see them receiving the promises of, of Yahweh and, and them walking in, in the way of the Messiah, maybe some of them will be aroused, even if by jealousy, that they would come in to the kingdom. Paul reports that his actions can cause jealousy or arouse something in them that can change their salvation situation. Again, unraveling that, that, that doctrine of election, right? If you look at nine by itself, you, you, get, you can just kind of go off in this weird space, but you read 10 and 11 right after, and you're like, I don't see how you, how you could possibly think that anymore. Then Paul goes into this idea of trees and being, being grafted into and, and broken off of. And uh, so in verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off, you, Gentiles, us, me, the wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others. So you're brought into the promises of God. You're grafted in. You receive them among the others, and now you share in the nourishing sap from the olive tree, but don't consider yourself superior to the other branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root. The root supports you. So this undermines another deep theology that people call replacement theology, that Christianity has replaced the Jewish people in all of God's promises no. The roots there, God has promise and purpose for Israel. Um, it goes on to say, I don't think I, I put it up on the screen, um, but later in this, it, it talks about the gifting and calling of God as irrevocable, right? If you were ever a young pastor, like that, that was like preached over you and, and yelled at you over and over again, the gifting and calling of God is irrevocable, right? That's actually about Israel. Now, is it applicable to people when God gives you a, a call Yes, that's, it's, that God is true yesterday, today, and forever. That word still ap applies to you, but it, is, it was written and intended for the nation of Israel. God has gifts and promises for them, and he has not revoked them. They've rejected him in, in the Messiah, but there is a time coming in the future that that will change. They were broken off because of unbelief. You stand by faith. I didn't see that say they were broken off by election. They were broken off because of unbelief, because of an action, because of a human choice. But you stand by faith. Middle of verse uh, 22, otherwise you also could be cut off if you begin to lack faith. And if you do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. God's not done with Israel. Just as we were, we were broken off of the wild olive tree and grafted in to the tree, uh, uh, that, you know, the, the olive tree, the tame olive tree, I don't know. Um, 
the Israel branches that were broken off can be regrafted in. It can be grafted into the same tree. And, and Paul even alludes to what great glorious things would come from Israel's belief in Messiah. So for us, what do we do with all of this? We recognize that our faith is all that we have that keeps us tied to that tree. It, it's, it is a blessing and an honor to be brought into the kingdom. We have a testimony of what God has done in our life and what he continues to do on a daily basis that can move others to salvation and God wants us to use that voice because how will they know if no one, if they don't hear? How can they respond to a gospel they haven't heard? And maybe you're the only Bible they'll ever read. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, challenging me to, to share these chapters today. That was fun. I thank you for allowing me to be your vessel for your children in this room today, tonight. I ask that as we transition into our, um, to our small groups and sharing time, that you would just rest this word in our hearts, uh, bring up new things or solidify that what you're doing in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Pastor Russell, pass off to you. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing the word tonight. It was um, very challenging, very compelling. And uh, we do have some discussion questions for us uh, that we'd like to put on the board. So go ahead and pop those up. So the two questions we would like you to discuss in your groups is, how would you explain to someone how to be saved? And then the other question is, how do you participate in spreading the gospel? And uh, as you know, we can always, you can discuss other things. You guys have prayer requests. You can do that too. Um, but God's word is intended to change us, right? It's intended to bring us life and, and allow us to minister to others. So, so the question is, what does this mean to us, right? How does it change us today? How do we use this? And, um, so we'll go ahead and break into small groups, um, you know, just maybe four or five, a couple, um, couple small groups, and we'll get started. So excited to discuss with you uh, tonight, and I um, hope you're blessed. And uh, for those online, uh, we're going to be signing off. So God bless you as well.